Amen. All right, well, you guys can have a seat. I definitely don't want to leave that place of worship, but we'll go back into it at the end of the night, and it'll be amazing. But man, I love the presence of God. So, so fun. <clears throat> hey, how's everybody doing? You guys doing okay? I know it's kind of a, a bit of a transition here to go from just soaking in the glory of God to then, all right, we're going to have some announcements, but that's um, kind of what we have um, for you guys today. But I wanted to start off before um, we even get into any of announcements, just by, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I know we all just got back from Thanksgiving, but just saying how thankful we are for you guys as a college staff. Like, we are amazed by you guys. We consider you guys a family, and we've had an amazing semester this year. Uh, we've seen amazing things happen in life groups. We've seen them grow. But more than that, we've gotten to have more people be a part of our family. We've seen awesome things happen in them, transformation. We've seen discipleship take place. And in discipleship, it's not just like a coffee shop meeting or anything like that, but it's a place where you guys are longing to look more and more like Jesus. And we've seen healings take place, countless testimonies of just what the Lord has done. And it's because he's God and he does that and he shows up, but it's also because you guys have postured yourselves in this place of hunger for God that we've been blown away by as a college staff. So super thankful that the Lord's been reviving our hearts this semester and super thankful for every single one of you. But there are a couple people that we wanted to highlight in particular tonight. We have some graduating seniors that we wanted to show our thanks and our special gratitude for. So could I have Jet and Joshua and Victoria come up to the stage as well tonight? Is she not here? Okay, that's okay. Well, Jet and Joshua, you guys can come on up <clears throat> to the stage. Do we have their gifts? You guys made it. You guys can stand up here. We're going to pray for you. We're going to give you a little gift as well. <clears throat> I know. I forgot to tell you guys. I'm so sorry. It's good for you, though. Here. There's that and that. Hey, well, these... <clears throat> These are amazing men of God, as well as Victoria. And we wanted to say a special thank you to Nathan in the back doing sound as well. He's graduating this semester, uh, but he's running the sound right now, so we're not, so not going to have him come up here. Um, but I just wanted you guys to join me in a time of prayer as we pray for them for their next season of their life. So if you guys would extend a hand with me towards them as I pray for them. God, I thank you so much for these two young men who have given you their everything. Lord, I thank you that that is no small thing, but you have so much more for them, God, in this next season of their life. God, as they step into the workplace, as they step into their careers, I thank you that they'll be salt and light to the rest of the world, Lord, that and when they show up, they're not just a, a, a thermometer, God, but they're a thermostat. They set the room. They set the room, they set the tone, they bring the spirit of God with them, Lord, and we thank you for that. So we ask that you would anoint them in this next season of their life, that I thank you that we go from glory to glory and strength to strength. So would you fill them with your love and your power, God, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, super thankful for, for them, for sure. Listen. Hey, well, one more announcement before we get started with the message. Um, next Thursday, December 8th at 7.30, so in regular place of Awaken, we have our annual Christmas party coming up. Yeah. So super exciting. Hey, one thing I want to make sure you guys know, it is a fancy Christmas party. So dress fancy, because if you don't, you might be the odd one out, just putting that out there. Um, and by fancy, I mean starting at the bar of like semi-formal wedding attire. Guys, if you don't know what that is, ask one of your friends that's a girl or somebody else. They can help you with that. But, and you can get as fancy as you want. 
Like, it doesn't matter. You guys can dress up super fancy. Um, and then as well as the fact that there won't be full-on meals, but we will have appetizers and hot cocoa and apple cider. So if you kind of err on more of the hungrier side, then maybe eat ahead of time um, or just save your money for in and out afterwards like you guys do anyways. And there's going to be lots of games and maybe some dancing. Only if you guys request it, though. So just putting that out there, if you guys want to request us to dance, then we might do it. Um, and then we're going to end the night just on a really cool note of something we felt like was from the Lord, but to end the night in the presence of God by sharing testimonies with one another. So <clears throat> we'll have testimonies um, at the end where we'll get to share what God has done this year. Um, and we'll also end just like with a song of worship, just that we go into break um, in this place of enjoying the presence of God um, with one another. So we called tonight the last awaken, but really next week is kind of the last awaken and it's a big giant party because Jesus saves the best for last. Amen? Awesome. Hey, well, with that, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 33, verses 20 through 22, and we're going to get started. But before that, let me pray for us, because we really need Jesus to show up tonight. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this room, and we thank you that you're already moving, but we ask for more. We ask for more, God that you would pour out your spirit without measure. I thank you that that's a promise to us in scripture. And so we cry out to it, God. Would we not be ones that you have to resist because of our pride, but would we be ones who you find as humble people that you wanna draw near to, God? Would we be ones that host the very presence of God? So would you come and show us what you want to tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, while you're still turning there to Isaiah 33, verse 20 through 22, um, I wanted to start just by sharing a little bit of what my journey has been like this semester. And every August, um, before the school year starts, we have what we call our annual life group leaders retreat. And so really all that is, is that we get together as a group of life group leaders and we meet in, the, in a big house that we usually have to rent out. But this year it was really cool. A family in the church actually blessed us, let us use their house. And it was less of a house and more of a mansion in their backyard. It was less of a backyard and more of like an amusement park. There was like pools and pickleball courts, basketball courts, like really anything you could want. It was awesome. Um, and that wasn't the only thing that I was stoked for for this life group leaders retreat though. I was stoked because I personally had this amazing summer with God where I really felt like he was coming and he was reviving my heart. I had very intimate moments with him throughout the summer, times of intercession, times of just meeting with him in this secret place where I was just feeling like on fire for God, where I would go on my runs in the morning and I would just stop and I'd like have to share the gospel with people because I was just so excited about what Jesus was doing. It was just this time of God really meeting me and wanting me to pour out to others. So I was super stoked for this life group leaders retreat, like having our family come back and getting to pour into them. But the only problem was that there was a monsoon the night before the life group leaders retreat. And during the monsoon, there was lots of lightning and thunder. And right as I'm going to bed, I hear this giant lightning strike, thunder, all of that, and like all this cracking from electrical wiring and our power goes out. And the problem with the power going out in the middle of August in Arizona is that your AC goes out as well. So our AC goes out right before this giant retreat. And I'm like, how am I going to get some sleep? And not only that, but we had a fridge full of food that was supposed to feed like 15 people for a whole weekend. 
So my mind was racing, I was stressed out, but somehow I managed to get at least some sleep. But then once the power goes out, the power has to come back on. So later on in the night, the power comes back on, it kicks on, the AC kicks on, makes a bunch of noise, the fans, all of it, and I wake back up again. And at this point, the night had been so turbulent that I had just kind of given up. And I was like, okay, I'm not gonna sleep. And at this point, I'm a little bit like upset. I'm like, you know what? We have this awesome thing for the kingdom happening tomorrow, a leader's retreat um, that feels pretty important. I'm gonna have to do some teachings and stuff like this. So this must be the enemy trying to sabotage things. Like it's gotta be warfare, right? So I'm like, all right, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do some warfare prayer. So I go and I get my weapons of choice. I get my Bible, I get my coffee and I go outside and I sit with the Lord and I'm like, all right, it's time to break some things off in Jesus' name. It's try to come at the enemy, all of that. And I sit down and I hear the Lord so clearly. He's like, son, what if this actually isn't the enemy trying to sabotage you? But what if I'm using this to get your attention right now? I was like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? well, you've been operating in your own power long enough and I've used this power outage and this sleepless night to show you that this is as far as you're gonna go in your own power and your own strength. It's time for you to realize that in order for me to take you any further, I need you to recognize how weak you really are. I'm like, all right, that's a little bit hard to receive, but God, I trust you. So we go on the retreat and like I said, I have a couple of teachings I have to give and everything like that. And I'm a zombie the whole time at this retreat, but God shows up because he had me right where he wanted me. He wanted me in this place of weakness where I needed him to show up in power so that it could actually be what he wanted to be for the retreat and not just my own ideas. And this wasn't just a moment, this kept happening throughout the semester. We come to the first awaken, there's all these new faces in the room and it's the night before the first awaken and the power doesn't go out again, but for some reason I just wake up in the middle of the night and I can't sleep, I can't fall back asleep. I'm like, okay, at this point, I think the Lord might be doing something and it just, it kept happening. Before any big event that I had to speak at or had to lead or something like that, I would just wake up in the middle of the night and I'm not the most like nervous guy in the room so I didn't, I know it wasn't just like, nerves and stuff like that, but I really felt like it was the Lord trying to get my attention. And then he brought the confirmation and the clarity of that. We're at a staff meeting um, and we're over there in the NPR room having our normal staff meeting on Tuesdays and our family pastor's there and he comes up to me and he's like, hey, Chris, I have a word for you. I have something that I wanna share with you. I feel like there's this picture the Lord has given you in, in my mind that he wants me to share with you. And as he's sharing it, it just resonates in my spirit so deeply. But what he saw was that I was in this ocean and I was on this boat and I was rowing these oars with all of my strength, all of my might. And the Lord was like, hey, I'm proud of you for that. I'm proud of you for giving me your effort, but I need you to put the oars down. I need you to put the oars down and rely on the wind of my spirit to take you where I really want to take you. I'm gonna take you to a place where you can't depend on the oars anymore, but you'll have to depend completely on me. And as if that wasn't confirmation enough, we're actually a part of um, a movement of churches, this Antioch. Um, so it's not just Antioch Phoenix, but we have lots of churches throughout the nation and we have teams overseas, if you guys are unfamiliar with that. But we have leaders of our movement and one of the leaders of our movement um, had this dream. 
And the dream was much like the picture that our family's pastor had for me. And it was Antioch as a boat headed out to sea, but then the boat stalls out and God begins to speak. He's like, I'm proud of you, Antioch Movement. I'm proud of you for giving me your lives. I'm proud of the hard work that you've put in and how far you've come, but it's time for me to take over. And then this giant ship comes by in the dream. And in the dream, of course, it's Jesus as the captain of the ship. And he's like, hey, you can stay on this boat that you're in as a movement, as a church, but you're only gonna experience a little fruit here and there like you have been. But if you come with me, I'll show you where I really wanna take you. And so it's this very similar word and just more confirmation, but then this keeps happening throughout our movement. There's pastors and leaders that keep having this same dream or this same vision or this same word of us being in this boat, paddling with our oars. And then Jesus stops and tells us, hey, this is as far as you're gonna get on your own, but you've gotta let go of the oars. You've gotta let me come and take over. So God's speaking to us as a movement. And I want us to be a part of it as a college ministry. I want us to lean in here and tune into what he's doing. He's telling us to let go of our words, let go of our own strength, to let him come and take over, to let him come and get rid of our self-sufficiency and our pride and our own energy and efforts and to depend completely on the spirit of God. But as always with prophetic words, with dreams, with visions, any kind of encounters like that with God, we never just take them at face value and not test them. The Bible actually tells us to test every prophetic word, so we always take it to scripture. That's really important, we really value that here. And so that's where we pick up here in Isaiah 33, verse 20 through 22. So starting in verse 20, it says, "'Look at Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. "'Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an undisturbed settlement, "'a tent which will not be folded. "'Its stakes will never be pulled up, "'nor any of its ropes be torn apart.'" So Zion and Jerusalem can be interchangeable of the church or the body of Christ at large. And it says that this tent here will not be folded up. So there's another promise here to the church that God's gonna cover us, he's gonna keep us, he's gonna strengthen us, he's gonna take care of us, right? And then we jump down to verse 21. But there the majestic one, the Lord will be for us, a place of rivers and wide canals on which no boat with oars will go and on which no mighty ship will pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. So God's confirming that he is for us, but where he's taking us, our oars can't get us. Where God wants to take us, our own strength and our own efforts are just gonna get in the way and we're just gonna end up doing circles again and again and tiring and exhausting ourselves out and burning out at the end of every semester, every long season. But this semester has been amazing. We've been on this amazing journey so far. We started off here at Awaken with this series where we, we really went with the tagline of our church that we have a passion for Jesus and his purposes in the earth. And we started off by saying, well, we have to have a passion for Jesus and his purpose in the earth, but the only way that that comes is by us first receiving his passion for us. And then after we receive that passion, we love him in return with our obedience. But sometimes that obedience can be really costly. And it even costs us having to take up our cross and deny ourselves and the road just gets narrower and narrower every time. 
And then we went on college retreat and it was amazing. And we had incredible encounters with God. We saw people experience healing and just get wrecked and undone by the love of God. It was honestly one of my favorite college retreats ever. It was so cool. And then we came back and we started a new series called Anchored In, where we talked about what it means to actually be anchored into Jesus. We talked about what it means to be anchored into his voice and follow his voice with every step that we take. We talked about what it means to be anchored into a life of spending time with him, becoming like him. And then we even talked about what it looks like to be anchored into going on mission with him to truly understand that we host the spirit of God and that where we go, when we go into the darkness, Jesus will overcome it, that we don't have to fear man and we can share the gospel boldly. And so we went and put that into practice right away. And we went to ASU to do a time of outreach and it was awesome. And we got to be salt and light to the campus of ASU, which was super fun. Then we came back and we continued in this theme of being anchored in, but this time being anchored in into the goodness of God that no matter what comes our way, we can trust that God is good. And if there's anything in us that thinks otherwise, then that thought is not actually from God himself because he is perfect and good in all of his ways. And then finally, Stosh ended the plane last week with being anchored into Jesus in the midst of suffering, where we would actually take those seasons of suffering as an invitation to experience more of Jesus instead of running away from them and being afraid of them. And tonight, as we wrap up the semester all together, I feel like there's an invitation for us. As a church, we've been crying out for revival, for God to come and move in power. And the word for us, the invitation is for us to stop trying to do it our own way and to actually surrender to the spirit of God to let go of our oars. And instead of there being maybe this kind of mixture thing, we're like, okay, God, we want revival, but we kind of want to have um, our hand on it. And we kind of want to make sure things don't get out of control, right? And any time where we're trying to control things, it's probably because we want a little bit of the glory ourselves. That's a little scary. But instead of just saying, God, help us in some ways, we need to say, God, come and take over. But the only way to do that is kind of cliche, and it's the cliche of we need to let go and we need to let God. So go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter seven, verses 36 through 50, and we're gonna see what it looks like to position ourselves in a way for God to come and take over. So <clears throat> this is a really significant moment in Jesus's ministry in Luke chapter seven, and verses 36 through 50. And earlier in the book of Luke, we see Jesus spend lots of time with what um, the Bible calls sinners of tax collectors, prostitutes, um, who the religious leaders of the day in this Jewish culture would have probably considered the scum of the earth. But Jesus takes it a step further and doesn't just spend time with them, but he even takes it the step of sharing meals with them, which would have had a lot of cultural implications in a near um, Eastern context of a Jewish context like that. That was a really intimate form of worship um, that they would have had and, and fellowship that they would have had as they joined around um, the table together. So when Jesus is associating himself um, with sinners, it, it kind of makes the um, religious leaders squirm a lot and they don't trust him. And then in this passage, we see that the tables are turned. 
We see instead of a sinner like Matthew, a tax collector, um, inviting Jesus over to his house, we see Jesus being invited over to the house of a Pharisee named Simon. And earlier in the semester, I made this comment about Pharisees that I think might have been misconstrued or taken the wrong way. And I made the comment that the Pharisees were these religious leaders who believed that if they obeyed the law meticulously, the commands they believed were given to them by God, then God would come and deliver them from the exile that they were in, that the Messiah would come back and all their problems would be solved. And what I wasn't trying to say is that I was trying to defend the, the Pharisees in any way, but what I'm trying to say is that their intentions weren't noticeably bad from a distance but Jesus still called them whitewashed tombs. He still said that, yeah, you're clean on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. And they should have been the ones to recognize the Messiah. They should have been the ones that should have known exactly who he was gonna be. But they were so obsessed with their rules, their religious jargon and their outward appearance. They were consumed with control and pride that they not only ended up missing him, but they ended up murdering him. And my desire isn't to defend them in any way, but my desire is to show that more often than not, we can actually relate to them. There's the first awakening of the semester. There's lots of new faces in the room, so I didn't really feel like standing up here as a newer college pastor and telling a bunch of people in the room that we can be a bunch of Pharisees sometimes. But it's three months later, we have a lot of relational equity, and you guys know me as a little bit more on the pastoral and warm side. So here it is. Sometimes we can suck just as much as the Pharisees. Sometimes we get so caught up in ourselves, our pride, our self-absorption, our self-dependency, that even with the good things like pursuing the Lord, we end up doing it our own way and completely miss Jesus in the process. But tonight, as we unpack this passage of scripture, my hope is that we learn to posture ourselves in a way where we quit doing that and we let him come and take over completely. So pick up with me here in Luke 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. The woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? <clears throat> Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. I think there's a little bit of irony there. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. 
whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So in this beautiful story in the gospel, we see three characters at play here. We see Jesus doing his classic Jesus thing where he kind of puts up with the Pharisees for a little bit and then he lets them have it in a kind but honest rebuking Jesus way. And then we see Simon the Pharisee who's supposed to be the true host of this banquet. And as the host of a first century Palestinian banquet, he would have been way more hospitable than what we see here, which is why Jesus goes back and rebukes him for that. He would have greeted his guests with a kiss. He would have washed their feet. He would have seated them by their age and their importance. There would have been a lot more honor and hospitality that should have been shown. But here's what happens. The party is actually disrupted by the real host of the banquet, a sinful woman who would have been despised the moment that she walked into a banquet like that, but not by Jesus. And that's what I want us to catch tonight. We as the people of God are called to host the Lord. Like we're called to host his presence. He's looking for a resting place to come and dwell among his people. Not just show up here and there, but to dwell, to inhabit us. That's the narrative that we see through all of scripture. God doesn't wanna just order us around from a distance or be the big guy in the sky that you know, comes to our help and our aid every once in a while but he wants us to host him in our very midst, to create room and space for him to come and have his way in our life. And not just host him and keep him off to the side where we're the star of the show, but to host him in a way where he can take over and truly have his way like we were originally designed for. Because it's truth, it goes all the way back to the garden. It goes all the way back with Adam and Eve as they walked in the garden with him in the cool of the day. We were never meant to have even an ounce of separation from God. We were never meant to be independent on our own. We were meant to live every moment with God, to depend on him for every need, and to even depend on his commands for us, to depend on his commands that give us life, commands that lead to true freedom and not the cheap kind of freedom that our culture tells us about, right? That freedom where honestly it's just control, but really control is just an illusion and it's a slippery slope that you end up having to go further and further down the road with, where we think we know best for ourselves, where we don't need God because we think we are a God, where we've got ourselves, we're fine. But Jesus tells us that we're not fine. He tells us that that kind of life, that kind of life of control will just lead to us gaining the world but end up losing our souls, feeling empty and dead on the inside every time. See, true freedom actually comes when we deny ourselves. And that doesn't mean denying ourselves in a way where we create a bunch of lists of rules like the Pharisees did. That's, That's missing the point entirely, right? That's their yoke. That's the yoke of the Pharisees. But Jesus has a different yoke, one that gives us rest, one that is light. Because true freedom isn't us ruling our own lives. True freedom is when we become completely dependent on Jesus to rule our life that no matter what comes our way, we're at rest. 
And that doesn't mean that our circumstances will already be great, like we talked about earlier in the semester, but it just means that our souls will be at rest. Because so much of our faith is actually more of an inward journey than it is an external one. Right? And we see that throughout the narrative of scripture as well. We see these epic, heroic narratives of um, characters in the Bible like Moses, who gets to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And we see these awesome things happen where he's splitting the seas open or God's splitting the seas open for him and he gets to walk on dry ground. And we see him encounter God through a burning bush and his staff turning into a stake and crazy things like that. But it's less about the crazy things that happen as God was leading them out of Egypt, but the rest of the narrative, what we see is this development of character in Moses where the Lord is actually taking Egypt out of Moses as well and taking Egypt out of the Israelites as well. And we see the same thing with Joseph, right? He believes he has this big calling and these dreams for his life where he'll actually rule over his brothers and his parents, but then he's thrown into a pit. He's sold into slavery And it's less about all the hard circumstances that are happening to him, but it's what they're preparing him for. There has to be this inward journey so he can actually handle the move of God that's to come in his life, so he can actually handle what God is calling him to. And that list goes on with plenty of characters throughout the narrative of scripture. So being a true host of the Lord, it isn't about external things, right? Like seating the guests in the right order, having the right invitation and the right hors d'oeuvres and such and such like that. But being a true host of the Lord is more of an inward journey of having the right heart posture so that he can take over and do whatever he wants to do. A pastor I know has a quote about it like this. And he says, God planted us here with a purpose. Yet it's a purpose we can't accomplish without him. Our true nature and personality will never come to fullness apart from his manifest presence. Learning to host him is at the center of our assignment and it must become our focus so that we can have the success he desires before Jesus returns. So learning to host him is a heart posture that actually takes focus. Right? We don't just cry out, God, come and take over. Like We need you, Holy Spirit, without there being a process and an inward journey involved. And that's what we see here. We see two opposing heart postures in this story. We see one that's more natural to our flesh, and that's the heart posture of Simon the Pharisee. And then we see the one of the sinful woman that crashes the party, but actually moves the heart of Jesus. So with Simon the Pharisee, the heart posture that we see is self-sufficiency and self-exaltation, which leads to him completely missing Jesus, the very Messiah that he was supposed to host. And a Pharisee like Simon wouldn't have just invited Jesus without some kind of agenda in mind. Simon was used to being in the driver's seat when it came to religious leadership. Right? The Pharisees didn't just obey the Mosaic law or the scriptures, but they also created hundreds of ways and rules to interpret it called the oral law that they would make everyone else try to obey as well. Basically, they created all of these rules and systems to follow to make them feel better about themselves because they didn't want to be made aware of the fact that they themselves were just as broken as everyone else because they despise sinners. And by sinners 
They meant prostitutes, tax collectors, and thieves, but they definitely didn't mean themselves. See, Simon didn't want Jesus to come in and to change things up. He wanted to continue to get to do things his way. So for a moment, we see a glimpse of hope. He actually invites Jesus to his house, but really it's more so to give Jesus a chance to prove himself, but more likely it's Simon just trying to put him in his place. And my concern for us is less that we're Simon and that we've missed Jesus completely because we're so caught up in religious duty and doing things our own way. But my concern is more so that there's a temptation that can be easy to give into, which is to act in a similar attitude. I know it because I've done it myself. Much like a lot of you, my faith journey, my um, relationship with God started in this place of being deeply broken before him, but being undone by how much he loved me and the way that he met me in his brokenness. It started from this place of being in desperate need for Jesus and how much that he saved me from where I would long for time in his presence so much because that was the very place that he pulled me out of depression, where I would long for the fresh grace and the power of God to come and take hold of my life because that was the only way that I was set free from lust, where I would long for the wisdom of God because I had no idea what I was doing when it came to ministry. And I kind of still don't, to be honest. But then somewhere along the way, I stopped living from this deep place of dependency and I started living from this place of just maybe asking God for help every once in a while or doing it in a way where I was telling myself I was asking God for help or telling myself that, oh yeah, I'm being led by the spirit, but really I was just controlling things where I was like, yeah, I, I think I got it. And that really scares me because I definitely don't got it. I desperately need him. And not like this false humility thing either, right? Where we just tell ourselves we suck so much and we're worthless, so God, come and take over, we need you. But no, there's still this internal dialogue of I'm a child of the king, I'm made for such a time as this, I'm gonna change the world. I go from glory to glory and strength to strength, but that only happens if I have the accurate understanding that that's because of him and without him, I'm nothing. Like he's the captain of the ship. He's the one driving the thing. My oars and my self-sufficiency, they won't get me anywhere, but just going in circles and tiring myself out time and time again. Because just like Simon the Pharisee, the reality is that we'll miss the savior every time if we don't think we need any saving in the first place. Or if we think that we're the ones saving ourselves. And that's the second heart posture that'll keep us from moving forward. Self-exaltation. Thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. And Jesus actually warns us about this in Luke 18, verses nine through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a 10th of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, 
went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the thing about this parable is that it actually addresses the disciples. It addresses those who are already following Jesus. Because Jesus isn't shy, and I love this about him, he's not shy about calling us out on our twisted views of righteousness and our propensity to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And he does that in his mercy towards us and his kindness towards us. And it might be painful for a moment, but it's kindness for a lifetime. He's a prideful Christian, an unbroken follower of Jesus is a dangerous Christian. Just like an unbroken horse is, an un, is a dangerous horse or an unbroken dog is a dangerous dog, it's the same with us. Because when we're unbroken, when we're so self-obsessed in all of our pride, we end up hurting everybody around us with comparison, with envy, with jealousy, with trying to get ahead and with competition, and we end up hurting ourselves. And God says that he resists the proud. Like he has to resist us, but he, he draws near to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. But our, our culture actually tells us something completely different and opposite of what Jesus tells us about pride. Our culture tells us that pride and self-exaltation are a solution to our problems, right? Like you go into a Barnes and Noble and to a library and you just see countless sections on self-help books. And a lot of them are in the Christian section because there's a lot of Christian self-help books out there that just disguise themselves with spiritual language, but really it's just more about you helping yourself than actually um, longing for Jesus to come and help you. It's, it's really more about you wanting to look like a better version of yourself than for you to actually look like Jesus. But it just didn't come for that, right? He didn't come for us to just be better versions of ourselves that's actually a super low bar. Like, I don't wanna just be a better version of Chris. I wanna be like Jesus. He came so that we could be more like him. And Simon, in this story, was so caught up in himself that he missed that completely. Because when you're caught up in your own self-exaltation, your defense mechanisms actually start to come out without you knowing it, and you start to protect yourself. And more often than not, it's criticism of others rooted in your own insecurity. And Simon not only criticizes this woman, but he criticizes Jesus himself, saying to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. See, pride and self-exaltation not only keep us from moving forward, but they make us miss out on the mission of God altogether. We have to be aware of our own brokenness so that we can actually see the broken world around us, the broken people around us, and be able to meet them in it with a place of knowing where they're coming from, with a place of identifying with them and saying, we're not the ones going out to save them, but we're the ones who've been saved by Jesus and are longing to lead him to him. And that's the kind of dinner party Jesus wants to come to. That's the kind of host that he wants he didn't come for the healthy, but he came for the sick. He didn't come for the self-righteous, but he came for sinners. He doesn't wanna just come in here to this church and see a museum for saints, but he wants to come to a hospital for sinners. And overall, this heart posture of Simon boils down to pride and to control. It's where we say, let me kind of host Jesus in my life, 
but really, I'm gonna have the reins on my life the whole time. Really, I'm the captain of this ship. You can be here, Jesus, and be a part of my life, but we're gonna go ahead and do things my way. And the tagline for our church and the core of who we are, as we've told you many times before, is that we're a people with a passion for Jesus and his purposes in the earth. But I honestly think it's as simple and point blank as this. Pride doesn't lead for us having a passion for Jesus and his purposes in the earth. Pride leads to us having a passion for ourselves and our own selfish desires. And that's a really scary thought. But what if there's actually another way? What if there's a heart posture that Jesus actually desires, one that will actually lead to real passion for him? One that he sees and says, that's a people I can use. That's a dinner party I wanna come to. That's a place where I wanna come and I wanna take over. Well, in 1904, Jesus found a place just like that. It's what we call today the Welsh Revival that some of you may have heard about. But in the Welsh Revival, which has been one of the greatest revivals in the history um, of the church um, that actually led to carrying over to the United States as well and blessing the Azusa Street Revival, which is where we get many of the denominations in America today. But in this revival, it was started by this young man named Evan Roberts, who was crying out to God in prayer. He was this deep man of prayer that was longing for God to come and show up where he was at. And he just starts to cry out, bend us, O God. And he just says it again and again, bend us, O God. Bend me lower, bend me lower, Jesus. And then the spirit of God comes in like a wind and people start to repent of their sin and they start to long for more of Jesus and it leads to one of the greatest revivals that we've ever heard about. And we as a community have been crying out for that. Like we've been crying out for revival and we've seen him do some pretty amazing things this past season. Like I can't really remember a time like this in our college ministry and in our church, but this is just the start. Like we're believing for a much bigger outpouring of the spirit that not only leads to cool things happening inside these four walls every once in a while, but that leaves these four walls and leads to a harvest of souls. Like that's revival. But that only comes when the cry of our hearts is to say, come and bend us, God. A British evangelist who passed away in 1992 said this about revival and brokenness. To be broken in the be- is the beginning of revival. It's painful, it's humiliating, it's the only way. It's being not I, but Christ. And a sea is a bent eye. The Lord Jesus cannot live in us fully and reveal himself through us until the proud self within us is broken. This simply means that the hard, unyielding self, which justifies itself, wants its own way, stands up for its rights, and seeks its own glory, at last bows its head to God's will, admits its wrong, gives up its own way to Jesus, surrenders its rights, and discards its own glory, that the Lord Jesus might have all and be all. In other words, it's dying to self and self-attitudes. And that's what we see with the woman in this story. We see a woman who is aware of her brokenness, a woman of true humility. 
And one of the biggest differences between pride and humility is the way that it positions us before the Lord. See, in Simon's pride, he kind of just called Jesus to come to his banquet, right? He did this one passive thing. Simon passively kept Jesus at a distance the whole time. But in this woman's humility, it led her to active determination and devotion to Jesus. She learned where Jesus was that night. She came to him and brought the jar of perfume. She wept at his feet. She washed them with her tears. She anointed him with her perfume because that's where true brokenness and humility lead us. They lead us to active pursuit of Jesus. Brokenness is the state that we find ourselves in when we truly recognize we are nothing without God and humility is just the right response. It's the opposite of pride. It's not thinking of ourselves, or it's not thinking less of ourselves, but it's thinking of ourselves less. It's a place of entire dependence on God where we're so aware of how much we need him that we give him all of our devotion. And that's what we see with this woman as she pours out her alabaster jar. And alabaster jars were made out of this rich marble material, and they were used to hold extremely expensive perfume. And scholars believe that a sinful woman like this probably could only attain something that expensive from a life of prostitution. And the jars, the alabaster jars, they're sealed shut, so the only way to get the perfume out is to break the neck of the jar. And at that point, there's no going back. At that point, everything is poured out. This was her all. This was her act of devotion. This was her love. This was her sacrifice. Her way of saying, I'm not going back to life as I know it, God. No more depending on my own ways of doing things. No more depending on my sin to get me by in life. No more depending on me having control of things. Come and take over God. But my question is, as we read this story, is how did she get to that place? Like, how did she get to this deep place of trust? Like, I know for me, and I think for her, like, I don't think we just realize how much we suck one day and we just say, okay, God, you can have everything. Here's my whole life. True humility isn't self-loathing and belittling and beating yourself up all the time. That's just false humility. It's, it's pride manifesting itself on the other side as insecurity. It's still a place of self-focus that takes our eyes off of Jesus and puts them back on ourselves. It has us wanting to run and hide instead of wanting to run to the one who's running after us. But when we truly understand the heart of the one that we're running to, when we truly understand his heart for us, that he doesn't meet us with shame and condemnation, but he meets us with love, that changes everything. It's why Jesus tells the parable of the money lender. It wasn't about who had the worst sin and who needed to be forgiven more. It was about who actually understood how forgiven they were. See, Jesus isn't asking us to just be aware of our brokenness that we feel terrible about ourselves all the time. He's asking us to remain in the place of brokenness so that he can put us back together in the way that he truly designed us to be. There's this um, Japanese form of art, and I'm probably gonna butcher the name, so somebody knows it, correct me, but Kintsugi, I don't know if anybody's heard of that before. 
Close? Okay, sweet. We'll go with it then. Um, but enkintsugi, that Japanese form of art, and what they do is they take like this broken pottery, these clay pots that they have, and they break them purposefully. And then they take like gold lacquer and they melt gold down and they glue it back together with that, mending it into something even more beautiful than it was before, before it was broken. And that's what Jesus does with us. That's what he wants to do with us. He doesn't just ask us to be broken at his feet so we can wallow in self-pity and shame. He asks us to trust him to put us back together in a more beautiful way than before. And that's the beauty that we see in this story. We see a woman who gives Jesus her brokenness and then is met with his affection. And that's what we have to understand. We have to come to this place of brokenness and dependence on God before him that's not just out of religious duty because that's what good Christians do, right? And it can't just be from this place of, okay, if we're humble and broken, then God will take over and we'll see really cool things happen. We'll see the power of God come. But it has to be from this place of pure devotion to him. But like we started this semester off with, pure devotion only comes from the place of understanding his affections for us. And personally, I've been going through a deeper season of humility myself um, and refinement with the Lord. He's truly been making me aware of my oars of self-sufficiency, my pride, my comparison, envy, all that messy stuff that comes from just being so self-focused and self-absorbed all the time. And so as this season has been happening, I've been praying, okay, bend me, God, come and bend me. Make me go lower. Like I need your power to come in my life. I need you to consume me. And as I'm going through this season, I get um, asked to preach in the kids ministry by our kids pastor. And he wants me to preach on the power of God. So I'm like, okay, great. This is what I've been crying out for. This is what I've been wanting. I can preach from that place. It's, it's perfect. I'm in this season of weakness and humility and, how, and recognizing how broken I am. And that's when the power of God comes. So that's perfect. So I'll go preach to a bunch of kids that in order to experience God's power in your life, he's got to break you first. I can do that. So... I go to sleep the night before and just like all the other speaking events, I wake up in the middle of the night. But this time it was a little bit different. This time it was from a dream I had. And I share this as a vulnerable place in my heart that I was actually a little bit hesitant to share with you guys, but I feel like it's powerful and I want the Lord to meet us in it. But I had this dream where I was married to my wife, like I am in real life, but in the dream, she wanted our relationship to stop being about um, romance and intimacy, and she wanted it to be more of a business relationship. So it's kind of silly in the way that it, it poured out, but um, I see like in the dream it flashed before my mind that she stops calling me babe and she starts calling me Chris, which would have been weird in our um, actual marriage. And then in the dream, um, I start seeing us having to go to a bunch of meetings um, together, which if you know me, meetings are like my worst nightmare anyways. But the point
point was we were going to like these meetings and we still had to work together, but we didn't have any romance or intimacy. We, were, we would sleep in the same bed, but there couldn't be any intimacy. We would, um, she really wanted my alumni ID, which is what gets me onto campus at GCU. That's like where I go to work and everything, which is really funny, but it was like, like she really wanted uh, me for the sake of ministry. And in the dream, I'm like so jealous. I'm like, no, like I want you. Like I want you for, for your love. I want you for your intimacy. And I wake up like super disturbed. I reach over and make sure my wife's still there, all of that. And then I get up to spend time with Jesus and to process it. And I'm like, what is happening, Lord? And so quickly and so lovingly and gently, he says, son, that's what I feel about you. I am so jealous for you. I don't want this to just be a business deal as you're calling out for my power to come, as you're calling for me to come and take over. Like, I want intimacy with you. Like, we've been meeting in the secret place, we've been meeting in the bedroom, but there's no intimacy. You've been calling out for my name, but there's no intimacy behind it. I've been getting you onto GCU and getting you into doors of ministry, but there's no intimacy, it's just work. But son, I want you. And so then he, he tells me, open to Song of Songs, chapter two, verse eight through 13. And it says this, I wanna read it to you guys. Listen, my beloved. Look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. And what was so cool about it was that he was like, all right, when you go in your journal to December of 2018, he led me to this specific place in my journal where he had spoke the same thing to me, the same verse, the same place of being the beloved of God, of being met with not just knowing that I'm a son who's loved by his father, but that I'm actually the bride of Christ, that I'm beloved, that I'm loved by him, that he wants intimacy and romance with me. And so it was cool that he confirmed it in that way. But then I go to a wedding later that day and the bride actually reads like that exact passage of scripture. And I'm just like, okay, Jesus is after my heart. <laughs> and I was undone. I, I don't cry a lot, but I was crying a lot that morning with the Lord. And ever since then, I've just been in this sweet season with the Lord where I've seen him come after my heart. And it's not just like this business deal where he wants to just have me for the sake of ministry or for the sake of just being a part of my life, but it's where he wants to smother me with his affection. And because we know his affections for us, that's where we can be done with self-sufficiency. That's where we can be done with pride. That's where we can be done with self-exaltation and control because we can trust that Jesus loves us that he desires us, that he is jealous for us. And when we surrender, it's giving him our alabaster jar, just like this woman did. Guys, when we look at the alabaster jar, it really wasn't anything that impressive or that extravagant. This was her life's work from the sum of her being a prostitute. 
And when you think about it, it's the same with us. Like we might not feel like we have anything to give Jesus because we don't. <laughs> Jesus already gave us everything that we have. We can't give him anything in return besides our sin and our brokenness. And that's what giving him our alabaster jar is. It's giving him all our broken, messy selves and being poured out at his feet. So Spirit of God, we just ask that you would come and move in this room, that you would smother us with your affection, Lord. That this wouldn't just be another moment of meeting you at the altar and then walking away, but that this would be a moment where we truly understand that we are outrageously loved by God, that we can give him our self-sufficiency, that we can give him our pride, that we can give him our life of sin in general, Lord, and that you meet us, God. You meet us with your love and your affection. So Holy Spirit, would you pour the love of God in our hearts like you always do? and we meet with our beloved tonight. Will you stand with me as we head into a time of response? As always, we're gonna have a ministry team up front to pray with you um, in whatever way that you may need. But I just wanna invite you right now to come and to give them your alabaster jar. We call this place the altar and it's open, the front is open for you to just come and to pour out all that you have to him. And maybe for some of you, it's a life of sin or it's sin like this woman, maybe specifically sexual sin and other forms of rebellion. And he's just asking you to pour it out before him. And he wants to meet you in that place and smother you with his affection. And maybe for some of you, it's the sin of Simon the Pharisee. It's this place of pride, self-sufficiency and self-exaltation or control. But no matter what it is, I know that he wants to meet you tonight, that he is jealous for you, that he longs to come and show you how truly loved you are. So trust him, trust him with your brokenness, trust him with your pride and trust him to show you what life really looks like when we let him take over. But don't leave this place without responding to God.